May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite memories of Camp McDowell is saying Compline every night at the end of the day in the old camp chapel, which trivia question answer here. It's actually named the Chapel of the Ascension, if you didn't know, so that's nice. I don't think we had anything to do with building it, but um, it is called the Chapel of the Ascension. Uh, anyway, so Compline includes some of my favorite prayers and scripture passages. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. And uh, also the famous scripture from Matthew, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, over 20 years later, and I'm sure it's been like this since the beginning of Camp McDowell, Compline is said in almost exactly the same way as it was when I was a camper, with a few exceptions. Uh, Psalm 31 is almost always chosen. The short scripture from Matthew that I just quoted is almost always chosen. And if you don't say the keep watch dear Lord prayer, then you're sure never to be asked to lead Compline again. Um, the, the most significant change that I've seen over the years is uh, the song of Simeon. Uh, of course, the words are the same, but today we chant it too slowly, in my opinion. We need to get Mike Sparks up there to teach him how it's really done. Uh, so, all that is to say, I should have known better. I should have known better than to offer something other than Compline when I was the senior camp director. This was about six years ago. Uh, while we said Compline more than any other service, I didn't offer it every night. And this was heresy, especially for the senior campers at that session. This was their last time that they were at camp. And if they didn't do Compline every night, then their senior camp was going to fall apart. Uh, so finally, one of them got the courage to ask, why didn't we read Compline tonight? The head counselor looked at me. I was the session director after all. I responded, I wanted you to explore other liturgies in our prayer book, or even beyond our prayer book. We, we are a, a, a tradition rich with liturgical texts. Anyway, we'll do Compline tomorrow night. I could have said a whole lot more, but I bit my tongue. My answer was not good enough. I don't think they heard me. So another camper proposed that they have an optional Compline service. I said, sure, you can have an optional Compline service. It doesn't need to be led by a priest. Knock yourselves out. So, <clears throat> so they're saying the optional Compline. And the camper who is so upset is not in the chapel. He's actually talking to me, still complaining about how we haven't done Compline every night and about how much Compline meant to him. While we were still sitting outside the chapel while Compline was being said, they were talking about how much they wanted to do Compline. Needless to say, he did not <laughs> say Compline that night. So the next day, I, I wanted to follow up, take this as an opportunity for a teaching moment. Uh, I talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, uh, a part of the Confessing Church in Germany, uh, part of the church that, um, that was against Hitler. Uh, he was eventually found out for a plot to kill Hitler. He was put in a Nazi concentration camp. Anyway, long before that, he wrote uh, this really important book. Uh, if you haven't read it yet, I hope you will. It's called Life Together. And in that book, he talks a lot about how the biggest danger to authentic Christian community is that we put our own human ideas 
before God's reality. We are quick to love our own human constructs of community more than we love the reality that God has created for us. Uh, Even though his book was published before World War II, uh, the truth he expresses are timeless uh, uh, today even. Uh, The biggest threat to our Christian identity is based on our dreams of what Christian community should look like rather than what it does look like in Christ Jesus. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, Christian fellowship is not an ideal that we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God in Christ. It really is a reality created when we gather around the Word and the sacrament each and every Sunday. So in an indirect way, I was trying to tell them that Compline is not the only way to pray before bedtime. Even more, I was trying to tell them that camp, while amazing, isn't the only way to do Christian community. And while amazing, camp is not the only way the world could be. So, as I recall that, that moment at camp, the, the, these five parables uh, communicate this truth, that God's community, um, God's word is what creates Christian community, not our own idealized versions of what it should look like. Uh, after all, our own ideas of community set in contrast to God's kingdom are always incomplete, imperfect, and limited. And if there's any reason we should have read that Genesis lesson this morning, it should be to remember that our idea of what life should look like is very different than what God's idea of what life should look like. That's one of those lessons that you don't take literally, right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, so uh, our own good ideas often lead to self-righteousness, which is antithetical to the kingdom of God. And to be clear, I am prone to love my dreams more than God's will uh, as well. So these first two parables, the the mustard seed and the yeast, remind us that God's kingdom is already planted in Jesus Christ, that God's kingdom already permeates every uh, facet of our life together, that God's kingdom is found in the most unexpected places, in the small, in the ordinary, in the stuff that we might consider unclean. The Jews considered yeast unclean. The first two parables tell us that it's not up to us to go out and create something new, create a new Christian community. It has already been created in God through Christ Jesus. Uh, And Jesus gives us a big hint on where to find this kingdom. It's not found in the same places that we go and uh, celebrate our earthly kingdoms and palaces and the grandeur of all that. The kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom of God is often found in the last places we would naturally look. The kingdom of heaven might be found in a worship service that that features an evangelical preacher who preaches for 50 minutes in a praise band, an extemporaneous prayer in the NIV version of the Bible. Jesus goes on to give us a teaching on what we are to do when we find the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus compares that discovery uh, to someone who sells everything just to buy a field, to acquire that hidden treasure that's in the middle of the field, and then to a merchant who's in search of a fine pearl. And foolishly, at least according to our standards, the merchant gives up his entire livelihood, everything that he has and owns, to secure that pearl of great price. But such is the experience of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We can't expect to fully live in God's kingdom on earth while we are still holding on to the things that we've acquired in our earthly kingdoms. 
We can't expect to fully live in the kingdom of God if we cling to our own ideas of what it should look like rather than letting go and participating in the life that God has already made available in Jesus Christ. Now, the final parable gets a little trickier. This is a mini parable on the final judgment. God will separate the good fish from the bad fish. The bad fish are those who are consumed by the kingdoms of this world, who have been basically put to death by the kingdoms of this world. And the good fish are the ones who are fit for life in the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but this one on judgment makes me a little nervous. I don't like it when I'm judged. Um, And I think it probably should make me nervous. Uh, The parable on judgment challenges me to think about what I hold most sacred in this world, especially those things that are antithetical to the kingdom. The parable demands that I take spiritual inventory and name all those temporal things I'm holding on to too tightly. What would happen to my soul, to my identity, if these temporal things that I put a lot of stock in are ripped away from my hands? I'm confronted with the truth that human ways, human ideas, human possessions will only fail me in the end. But there is good news, right? The series of the parables ends with Jesus asking, do you understand? And without hesitation, they say yes. And now I know y'all are smart people. I know you understand the message that Jesus is putting before us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything you need will be given to you. Make your priority in this life the discovery of the kingdom of God in our very midst and everything else will be taken care of. You don't have to worry about anything else. But the real question for us in our faith is, do you trust this message? Do you trust this message enough to actually live your daily life in such a manner? And now I've said some version of this before. I estimate that I live about 70% of my life in the kingdoms of this world and about 30% of my life in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not exactly a star student over here. But the good news is that the God is never going to stop working on me. God will never stop working on you. God will never stop working to reveal the kingdom of heaven, even when we start looking for life in the wrong places. I have experienced God's grace enough times to remember that God is doing everything in God's power to get our attention, to show us the way to life and life abundant, no matter how far off track we go. Finally, Jesus tells the listeners who understand the message of the kingdom to train others in kingdom matters. Now, I can relate to this. I've been trained to teach and preach. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. Sure, that might not be your job title, but it's a part of your vocation as a baptized member of the church. Uh, In your own unique way, you have the opportunity to open others to the possibility that God's kingdom is right here, right now. You, you, you have the opportunity to remind people to look for God in the small and ordinary places that we might not think to look. We all have the opportunity to remind people that God's kingdom is here and everywhere and even there. We have the opportunity to show people just how serious we are about living in that kingdom by making sacrifices, daily sacrifices, for the sake of the gospel because we believe it that much. Like the parables of the loaves and the fishes, God has really given us everything we need for kingdom life through Jesus. The word and the sacrament, primarily, that's what the church says. It may not appear to be much on the surface, but the possibility in God's kingdom are endless. And we have reason to hope for endless possibilities because our Lord and Savior is risen from the dead. Nothing, not even the power of sin and death, can stop the growth of God. God's kingdom is like that weed that just won't go away. Like that weed 
who you try to, that, that you don't think should be there, you can try to pull it, you can try to spray it with Roundup, but it will always grow back and faster than before. So may you have the grace to surrender your version of what you think the world or the church should look like and trust that God's way is better than our way, than through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. A truth that we found in, in St. Paul's letter to the, to the Romans, uh, even though we don't know how to pray them as we ought, God's going to take care of it with sighs too deep for words. We remember that in Genesis, even though this is a really weird story about how Jacob uh, gave birth to the 12 sons who, who were the tribes of Israel. God's will is accomplished. For we follow a God, a Lord and Savior, who is risen from the dead, Jesus Christ. Amen.